All right, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Psalm chapter 46. Psalm 46. Um, yesterday, Leslie and I took our, took our kids to the, uh, the Conesty Park over in Malden. And um, if you've ever been there, it's a, it's a big park complex. And there's also um, a lot of, of trails that take you through the, the Conesty Park Reserve kind of area and around the lake. And um, what's interesting, I realize I've never been there before. What's interesting about those trails is there's a lot of them, and they sort of connect back and forth. And I was constantly pulling my phone out, looking at the map, going, okay, we go this way, and we go, which, which way do we go to actually get back here? And we don't want to stray too far from the bathroom because we have little ones and, you know, all of that. Um, but what's interesting, too, is through the course of those trails, there are several spur trails, little trails that don't specifically go anywhere. They don't connect you to another trail. What they do is they take you out to see something you otherwise would not see. And, and, it, and they're great because they help give you a better perspective of where you are and, and what's going on in, in, this, in this just phenomenal nature preserve area. Um, and, and so where we are this morning, um, as we've been navigating, we're closing out the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to take a little spur trail, if you will, um, to get a, just a broad view perspective, uh, sort of to come to the edge of, uh, of things and look out uh, across the, the biblical landscape um, and, and sort of assess where we are to, to uh, help get one particular um, better aspect of, of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. Um, so we're going to take that, just take that spur trail this morning um, before, we, uh, before we close out the sermon series on, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to do that from Psalm 46. Uh, so if you're in Psalm 46, um, I'm going to read the whole psalm. It's only 11 verses, um, but I really want to focus on verses 4 and, and 5 today. Um, but, but of course, it takes the full context of the, uh, of the psalm itself to, to navigate those, those two little verses. So Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the, into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake and it, at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in her midst. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Who has wrought desolation in the earth? He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving. Know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Let's pray. Father God, I am, I am grateful to you for this small body of believers, these people who you have brought together under this roof as a local expression of your global body. We would worship you in spirit and truth. Grateful for each of them, Father. For each of them 
who have faith in you and who, whom you have given your Holy Spirit bear marks of the new covenant coming to bear in their life and love one another, Father. And it's, it's imperfect, I know, as much as I am imperfect, but I see evidences of your grace in so many lives. So, Father, I'm humbled, I'm grateful for these people. I'm grateful for the work that you are, are doing, the work that you have been doing, and the work that you have yet to do. Father, may your word go forth before us. May it parade in glory. May we stand upon the edge of it and gaze at what you have been doing throughout history this morning. And may it give us an unsettling faith in engaging in the work that you are continuing to do. Open our eyes, Father, to your glory this morning and move us to faithful and bold obedience. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So briefly, the context of this psalm is as we, as we read it, you, you notice that this is sort of like a picture of a well-fortified city which stands an impenetrable against all odds, really. I mean, when you look at what's the words and the language that's being written in here, it's like the entire world is falling apart, and there's this city that's, that's solid. It's immovable. Not, nothing, nothing will shake it. Nothing will unsettle it. it. It is bold in its confidence, not in itself, but in God, and it holds itself together because of God's presence within her. That's the essence of verses 4 and 5. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. It's an encouraging psalm. It was, in fact, it was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. He was known well for saying, let us sing Psalm 46 and let the devil do what he will. That's a bold, bold statement. It's a bold statement. This, this song, actually, the, the old hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, comes from this psalm. So it's a psalm that saints have looked to throughout the years for confidence and encouragement. And it's timely for us today. And so I want to ask this question, and I'll come back to this at the end. Where does your hope rest today? Does your hope truly rest in the God of, of the Bible? When you look out across the cultural landscape, and you, and you see the things that are going on in the world, locally, globally, causes you to reflect, where does your hope rest? Look at these things from verse 1 and 2. It says that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change. And here is how the psalmist describes this change. Though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar, though the mountains quake and its swelling pride. It's a, it's a picture of the landscape changing and becoming unsettling. If we had an earthquake, we had phenomenal geological things that happened, it would cause us to be very, very unsettled. And all that we know that we rest on and hold to be true, the ground under our feet, the, the, the cycle of, uh, of, of natural patterns from weather to the sun, and when all of that changes, it would be extremely, extremely unsettling. And this is the picture that the psalmist paints. So consider some things in our culture today, like some roaring waters or, or some popular cultural commotions that would unsettle us. 
What about the rise of random murders and suicides? You, you pull up on your phone app, you look on the TV news and see what, you know, what, what news stories kind of pop up out there. I was looking at them just this past weekend. You know, this, this young lady who embezzled several million dollars and she kills herself in the front of a Walmart. Or a family with several adopted children who end up driving the entire family off of a cliff in California to their death. Or Leslie was telling me about this that I didn't know about, a, 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 a man who near where we used to live in Georgia was shooting at cars from the, uh, uh, from the, um, from, from the roadside. You know, this, this was a section of main interstate highway where, where Leslie would travel regularly. Now, when you look out and you see the, the rise of, of, such, uh, of, of such things, where does your hope rest? Roaring waters. What about protests for new moral norms? When, when there's discussion and, and uh, certain things that happen within the court systems about new moral norms, changes to, to, to morality, uh, and those types of things, those larger discussions, that, that things that we've taken for granted in the past. What about scandals in politics? Scandals in Hollywood, locally, globally, scandals in our own school systems, the roaring waters of things that we just listen, that we, that we hear, and we go, that's not right. It unsettles us. What about the tumbling mountains? Though the mountains quake, the mountains tumble, those, those trusted pillars of culture that are typically stable but are now crumbling. What about perhaps political systems? Rightly or wrongly, whether you agree with the political systems, I know many have put their hope in structures of democracy and things, and touting democracy and touting, you know, touting the, the cultural systems and our political as, hey, this is it. This is, what, this is, this is the best we got, and this is our, this is our answer and seeing those types of things crumble. Putting particular political leaders in place and going, nope, that one didn't work out. Nope, that one didn't work out. Disappointment in those political structures. What about foreign relationships? Relationships with foreign countries that, and allies that we've, we've banked on and we've leaned on, and then those relationships start to fall apart and can no longer lean on those, or perhaps we don't feel like we can lean on them as much anymore. They're unsettling. What about redefinition of the family unit? There's a big one. I mean, here's the, here's the core of cultural society that has been normative you know, in, in America since its foundation and in many, many other countries throughout the world, and it's being redefined. And there's the big question mark above it. says, what happens to the culture when you redefine the family unit? What happens? It could go on. But there are, there are countless tumbling waters, popular cultural commotions, and, and then and the crumbling mountains, trusted pillars that we've leaned on that, that, that is changing. I mean, the, the, the basic core of that is the cultural landscape is changing. And not just in America, but throughout the entire world. You look in Great Britain, look in Europe, you could look all over the world, and the cultural landscape is shifting. It's changing. And that's big. And so in the midst of, of, of turmoil, how does, how does verse 1 and 2 happen? How is God our help in the midst of such turmoil? That's the essence of this psalm. The psalmist writes and 
points at God and said, God is our refuge. God is our strength. He is our very present help. Or as some translations read, an abundantly available for help in our time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. So how is God our help? How is God more than just a, an ideological concept out there that we say, well, this is true, but I really struggle with all of this in here. Sort of like this get-out-of-jail-free card that I have, but I still have to deal with the reality of a fallen world, and it's, and it's separated, because I think for so many, that's the disconnect. There's an idea about God and who He is, and we can, we can ascribe certain truths to Him, you know, to God, like I might say about China. These, these things are true of China, but I've never actually been there. No. What's the difference between the disconnect from that and God actually being a present help? What does, that, what does that look like? Because the temptation for us is to, is to fight for maybe redeeming the culture, to lift up some of these things, you know, the, the, these things like, like, like for abortion, like for certain rights, like for, um, uh, you know, certain things that are good and may have moral foundations, but we put our ultimate hope in them. Or to hold ourselves up in sort of a little survivalist mentality. We sort of, sort of get a, uh, 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 um, uh, we, we get that survivalist mentality of, well, well, here's our little church circle, and we're going to be here, and the world's over there, and we're just going to sort of hold up right here and, uh, uh, until Jesus comes back. You know, that, that's, that's what we do. And, and I want to say neither one of those are true. Neither one of those are true. And the answer to that question, how has God our help in the midst of turmoil, comes here in verses 4 and 5. It has to do with the presence of God. But to answer that, I think it, it may be helpful to be reminded of what God has been doing throughout history in, in order to gain perspective. So here's where, if we're on our spur trail, here's where sort of we get to, if you've ever been hiking and you come to like a gorge or something, you get, you get to the look-off, and you stand there, and you get to look out and see. And your, your guide, if you've got a guide with you, would point and go, okay, well, there's that rock over there, and there's, there's that over there, and can help give you perspective. And so as we're on our spur trail, we come sort of to that edge, and now I want to take a moment to, to just look across the landscape, okay? So we're going to move really, really fast, and I'm going to take you probably through the majority of the Bible. <gasps> it's Okay. It's all right. There's a guardrail here. You're in your seat. If you feel like putting a you know, safety buckle on, that's fine. Okay? But here, here's what I'll do. I'm going to trace promises of God through Scripture to give us perspective. And, and in the midst of that, we'll, we'll come to the context of, of, of this psalm. And, and we'll show, I'm going to show how there's the temptation to kind of put the trust in the long, wrong perspective. And then we'll look at, okay, now as we move through into the New Testament, what does this look like for for us? What does trusting in God look like for us in the midst of cultural turmoil? Okay? That's a lot to swallow. I know. I'm a detailed person. I usually go for detail, but this is helpful. Go big picture, and that's where we are today. All right. Have we got your oxygen, oxygen mask on? Okay. Here we go. Genesis 1. I told you we were starting at the beginning. Genesis 1. So, God creates the world. God creates man as his vice regent over creation he puts man in the garden, gives him authority over all that's there, and God walks with man. His presence is with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. 
That's his presence. His very presence was with him, and it was good. But man disobeys. He disobeys, and, and he sends the, that disobedience has massive effects. Sends the entire universe into entropy, into breaking down. Fundamentally, man no longer has fellowship with God. His presence is no longer with man, right? That was the essence of you're going to die. You're, you're going to die. Your, your, your fellowship, your, your relationship with me, my presence with you, my blessing upon you is going to be severed. And that was pictured by them being sent out of the garden. But they're not left without a promise. Genesis 3.15, God speaking to the serpent, right? It's the serpent that deceives Adam and Eve. Speaking to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. Speaking of, of Eve, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here's the promise that I'm not done with this, Satan. I'm, uh, this, is not the, this is not the end. I am going to carry this out to redeem a people for myself. My presence will dwell with people. This is not the end. This is not the end. And the story that follows contrasts the promise of, of, of these lines, of God working through the offspring of Adam and Eve to, to bring this back to redeeming a people for himself so that his presence would dwell with this, that the blessing of God would rest upon his people. Then we quickly, we, quickly, quickly, we quickly see there's nothing inherently good within this line of promise. When you look at the people that God places his blessing upon and he comes upon them and, and says, I'm going to use you, you quickly find that these people don't match the, this heroic stereotype that we, we, we might want. They're not deserving of, of this blessing. It's a grace of God that comes down and says, I'm going to use you in spite of who you actually are. It's God's mercy. We get to Genesis chapter 12. God comes to Abraham. Right here, Here's Abraham. Who's a, he's a pagan idol worshiper. And he says to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Right? What, he, what does he say? He says, my favor is going to rest upon you. My presence is going to be with you to carry out this promise of redeeming a people for myself. I've got a plan here, and Abraham, you're going to be a part of it. And he says, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's huge. He says, I'm going to be a blessing to, to all the families of the earth, all the nations, which is major because if you, if you were here when we did our study in Genesis, Abraham doesn't have kids. And Abraham isn't exactly a spring chicken, neither is his wife. Right? God's, God's got to do something major here. We call this a miracle. We're going to see a lot of these. God's got to do something major here in order to make this happen. It's a big thing. He's going to be a blessing to the nations. Now, it's pointed that we stop here and we ask this question. Okay, how is God going to do this? In any point in Scripture, when you're looking through it and you keep in mind what God is about... Ask that question, how is God going to do this? More specifically, okay, in God's economy, what must take place in order for the curse to be removed and his blessings to rest upon his image bearers again? Okay, when God does something, when God spoke and he created creation, it says it's good. It was fitting, it was balanced. Everything existed with its purpose, its function, and it glorified God. Exactly, but when man sinned, everything spun out of control. And the fact that God is, works throughout history to bring it back to what, what he designed 
and that he didn't just go, is, is very telling about the nature of God and who God is. And so asking that question, okay, in, in the nature of who God is, what must take place in order for that to happen? Because oftentimes we think, well, why can't God just forgive sin and make everything you know, happen, happen again? Well, if, if you were to do that, just willy-nilly, you know, without, without a balance of a sacrifice, we'll get to that in a minute, without a payment, there becomes an unbalance in the economy of God. You get the grace of God without the justice of God. And so it's important to ask that question, okay, what has to happen, or what is God telling us about what happens in his economy in order for this to take place? So, back to looking over the the landscape. God comes to Abraham, makes this promise to bless him. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. Later, Genesis 15, God raises the stakes here. He comes back to Abraham years later, and he says, Abraham, look out over the sky. Do you see all the stars? Yes, God, I see all the, all the stars. I'm going to make your offspring more than the stars in the sky. If you've ever been out, you know, into the, into the country, we're in the country here, but if you go even, even further out, like where the McWhites live, you know, you can look out in the, in the night sky where there's no, no street lights, and on a clear night, it's just thousands and thousands of, you know, of, of stars. God, Abraham looks out, and he goes, wow, that's a, that's a lot. Still no kids yet. He's gotten older. Still no kids. And so he, he humbly asks the Lord, he says, Lord, how I know, how I know that you're going to do this. And what follows is amazing. Because God, he, he has Abraham perform this cultural ritual where Abraham takes, and he takes animals, and he cuts them in half, and he sets them in two, two lines with a little path down the middle. And the Lord's, the Lord's presence, represented by a torch, passes between these sets of animals. Now, in the normal context of this day, when people would make a covenant like that, the two agreeing parties would both pass between those sets of animals. And basically what they're saying is, may what has been done to these animals, basically the splitting in half of them, happen to me if I fail to uphold my end of the bargain. Now, now notice what happens with God. Abraham doesn't walk down the path. Only God does, which means it's binding on God, God himself, his very nature, to uphold the promise to Abraham that he's given. That's huge. God says, basically, may I be torn in two if I fail to do this. That's huge. God just upped the ante on, on, uh, on, on carrying out his plan with Abraham. But he does, right? What do we know? Isaac is born. Isaac is born into Isaac. Isaac, uh, Isaac has 12 sons, which eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. And we get into later in Genesis, and uh, uh, Isaac is renamed Israel, and Israel and his family move to Egypt, right? They, they, they become favorable through Joseph and, and with Pharaoh. And at the end of Isaac's life, on his deathbed, he blesses his sons. Each one of them comes before him, and he blesses each one of them. And he says to Judah, the scepter will not depart from you. Now, that, that's huge. That's, that's, that's a big deal because they're not kings, right? There's, there's no royalty going on here. But what it is, is it's a promise. God is telling us, okay, what has to happen in my economy? A seed's got to come out of the woman in order to bring about this redemption. And that seed's going to be a king. There's going to be a kingship here. Okay? There's got to be a kingship here. There's a promise of that. Kingship must take place. So what happens? Well, generations pass. 
the, uh, the Israelites now grow into a, a larger people and, uh, and, and new pharaohs come to, to power that don't know Joseph. Um, and they look out at the, at the Israelites and go, okay, these people are larger. They're, they're, they're a threat to us. And so they, they put them into slavery. And God hears their cries and he frees them. But it's not without great cost, right? Here we are in Exodus. You've got, um, uh, you, you've got the ten plagues that come. And the last plague is the death of the firstborn. And God comes to, to, the, to the people through Moses and says, in order for you to be spared from this, take a lamb, slaughter it, take the blood, put it over the doorpost. When the angel of death comes, he will see the blood on the doorpost and it will pass over you. Now this is important because what God is saying here is both the Israelites and, and the Egyptians are under a death sentence. The, the Israelites are not scot-free from the judgment of God. They're just as guilty as the Israelites of disobedience and unbelief in God as the Egyptians are. But God provides a way out for them through the blood of, this, uh, of the Lamb. God was merciful, mer- merciful through them. And here we get an, we get an inkling of, okay, what's got to happen in God's economy in order for this to take place? As a substitute, the lamb died instead of then. That's the drumbeat. That's what God says. The, the lamb died instead of your firstborn. Substitute is, would be essential for restoring fellowship with God. So God frees his people, frees them from slavery. Slavery sends them out into the wilderness through Moses. They come to Mount Sinai, and God does what? He establishes the law with them. He says, here's a, here's a system, here, here are boundaries for how you should live with me and with one another. What does it look like for the people of God to be unified together? As I'll show you. So you've got a good chunk of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy there that describe and, and outline this system. It's a system that has substitutionary atonement at, at, the, at the core of it, right? Echoes of that lamb uh, that, that died for them because God establishes the sacrificial system. He sets in place these laws for, for the people. Here's how you should conduct yourself with each other and with me. But I know you're going to fail. And so he sets up the sacrificial system you know, in, in order for atonement to be, to be made. And that was with the tabernacle, right? And, and uh, in, in Leviticus, um, God establishes the building of the tabernacle. Here's the place where God's presence would dwell. Here's what, here's what uh, God says to Moses in Exodus 25. He says, let them, speaking of the, the Israelites, construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. There I will meet with you, Moses, uh, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cher- cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony. I will speak to you, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. And here's the point. God's redeemed a people for himself. He's, he's started to bring this promise about, and you're actually starting to see bits and pieces of the puzzle come together. Here's the tribe of uh, of Israel, and keep in mind, this is a lot of people. This probably, when, when the Ark of the Covenant was built and put, and God encamps the, all 12 tribes, it probably encompassed about a 12-square-mile radius. That's huge. I mean, that, that's a lot of people, okay? So it's starting to look like, okay, God is putting this together. He's starting to make this happen. But w- what is this telling the people? Okay, the, the, the sacrificial system and the, and the Ark of the Covenant and God meeting with the people and only Moses and only the high priest could go in there. God says, I'm, I'm dwelling with you, but I'm in a distance. There's a barrier. There's something that separates 
me from you. And that would, that would have been very, very present throughout the whole, this whole system. God is among us, but he's at a distance. To later, Israel then decides, we want a king. We, we want a king like the nations around us. And God says, okay, I'll give you a king. He gives him Saul. Saul becomes very much a king like the, like the, the surrounding nations, which was more than what the people bargained for. But then God anoints David, Saul's uh, God anoints David, who is a man after his own heart. And in 2 Samuel 7, David consolidates power into Jerusalem. Okay, here we've got a city now. All right, we're starting to see pieces come together. Consolidates power into Jerusalem. He establishes peace in the surrounding regions. And David looks out and he goes, you know, I live in a big house made of cedar. God lives in that little tabernacle. I'm going to build a temple for God. And Nathan, the prophet, comes to him and says, okay, you know, this is, this is a good thing. God approves of this. However, here's what God says to you. God turns the table on him and says, you want to build, an, uh, you want to build a perpetual uh, home for me. Because remember, the tabernacle would travel. They were nomadic, basically, up until this point. And, and David wanted to build a big temple for God that would be a permanent home you know, for the Lord. And, and, and God comes to David and says, that's a good thing that you want to do. You're not going to do it. Your son's actually going to do it. But here's the promise I'm going to make for you. I'm going to make your, uh, I'm going to make your kingship an eternal one. He says, I will establish your throne forever through your descendants. And, and again, David would not build this temple, but Solomon would. Solomon would. Now things are looking good so far, right? These are looking pretty good. God's bringing these things about to bring, to to reestablish his. Uh, his presence with his people. We've got a city. We got a king. We got a kingship. Man after God's own heart. I mean, if you were in there, you know, amongst this, and you could look at it from that perspective, you might go, "Okay, things are looking good at this point." God even then comes to Solomon's First uh, Kings six, and he says, "Concerning this house which you are building, Solomon, if you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will carry out my word." which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the sons of Israel, and I will not forsake my people, Israel. So here's God's promise. He's making it contingent upon obedience. Now what do we know of, uh, of Solomon? Well, Solomon failed that test, right? He, he turned to, to other gods. And, and actually this becomes the pattern. Uh, this becomes the pattern in Israel's history. They failed to keep this this covenant. What happens later is the, the, the tribes split. You get 10 of them that move north, and they establish the northern kingdom. They actually set up two, uh, two separate places of worship there. Um, and then the two that are left, Judah and Benjamin, um, are, 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 the, is, uh, are the southern kingdoms. So you got the northern kingdom, southern kingdom. What happens with the hearts of the kings? The, the hearts of the kings move away from God disobedience follows. God ceases to dwell among them. And they were conquered by outside nations. In, in 722 B.C., Assyria conquers the northern kingdom. And then in 586, in a, in a, in a timeline when you're pre-A.D., the numbers, the greater numbers are actually before the lesser numbers. It's kind of weird, but that's the way it works. Um, 586 B.C., southern kingdom, that's Jerusalem, falls to the Babylonians. 
So all of a sudden, what God had promised and what seemed to be true and happening in Jerusalem is now sent asunder. And this is the, this is the setting now of Psalm 46. Okay, Psalm 46, many commentators uh, believe were written right around the time of the Assyrian invasion. No, right, right before that. That's actually in uh, in Second Kings 18. There's a there's a story of the uh, uh, of the Assyrian army coming to uh, to to lay siege to the city. Uh, I think it's to Jerusalem. They're they're laying siege against the armies of of Israel. And in the morning, um, in, in the morning before a battle, the angel of the Lord goes and just wipes out the Assyrian army. And that, that's uh, many commentators draw that to God will. Help her when morning dawns. Okay, so so there's great hope at this point that God will 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 hold His city, will keep His city, even though the nations are roaring around them, even though things are crumbling. There is trust that God will actually do this. But but what happens? Both kingdoms fall, and and the people are sent into into exile. The people are sent into exile. Now notice this. Remember when we were back in Genesis 15 and, and God made that promise to Abraham? Let this be done to me if I don't uphold this. God has bound himself to, to, bless, to the blessing he promised Abraham, but he's also made this blessing contingent upon Israel keeping his statutes. Do you see that? Israel has to keep his statutes in order for God's presence to dwell with them. But God has also bound himself to keeping his promise to Abraham. Do you see the tension that's there? That's major. There's a huge tension. How do you reconcile that? How do you, how do you rectify that? Because the sacrificial system that was there seemed to sort of bridge that gap. Okay, we got the sacrificial system, but the problem was is the people were continually having to offer the sacrifices because the people kept sinning. Disobedience was perpetual in, in Israel. The sacrificial system didn't provide the cure for the heart issue of the people. And so something greater was needed. And so when the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were decimated, and, 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 uh, the, the, and the people of God were sent into exile. Here we are into the major prophets now. God made specific promises. I'm going to give you one, two, three, there's four of them. Give you four of these. Give you four of these because what God was doing is pointing forward to something that was going to come. And my daughter would say at this point, is that Jesus? Yes, it's Jesus. Okay, spoiler alert. God was pointing forward to something that would come in order for this to happen. So let me give you these real quick. Isaiah comes on the scene just before the judgment uh, uh, of, of, uh, of Israel. He prophesies concerning the judgment of Israel and Judah. He saw the fall of Israel to the Assyrians. And in Isaiah 53, this is the suffering servant passage where he get these words. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. A greater substitute would have to come, and that would be the suffering servant. That would be the suffering servant. He also prophesied of a new heavens and a new earth. 
Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new things. This is the Lord speaking. For behold, I create uh, new heavens and new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. The wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will, know, they will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain. A new creation would need to take place. There would, be a new, there would have to be a new creation. And in the new creation, there would be peace. There would be rest. There would be joy. There would be a river that overflows that makes glad the city of God. Jeremiah comes on the scene. He was a younger contemporary to Isaiah. He spoke or prophesied specifically of, uh, he prophesied about uh, Judah, but specifically of Jerusalem and its coming judgment. He spoke of a near judgment, but then a, uh, a distant redemption. In Jeremiah 31, we have the new, new, a promise of a new covenant. God writes and says, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. In those days I will put my law within them, and on their hearts I will write them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach each other again, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. The suffering servant who would come, take on him the iniquity of us all, would show us what God is like. Teach us who God is because he would remember our sins no more. So the northern kingdom, southern kingdom fall. Israelites are exiled from from Jerusalem to Babylon. One of those is Daniel. Another one is Ezekiel. Ezekiel preached judgment on the surrounding nations for what they had done. And he also preached hope of restoration to the Israelites who were taken captive. In Ezekiel 37, God takes uh, Ezekiel out to this valley where there are dry bones. And he says, Ezekiel, prophesy over the bones you know, that, they, that they would live. He even, even asked Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel goes, Lord, you know that. <laughs> no. So he says, prophesy over them. Bones are raised up and they're clothed in flesh, but there is no life in them. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, Breathe, breathe, uh, breathe into them. And, he, and he, he breathes and they come to life. They come to life and he says to Ezekiel, he says, I will put my spirit within you. Speaking of, uh, of, of the people of God, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. The previous chapter makes a parallel statement. So I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. See, what did the people truly lack to be alive? It was God's Spirit. God would give that to them. Would give them what they need so that they would know that He was the Lord. So don't miss this. All of these things have to take place in order for God's tw- presence to dwell with man again. These are the streams that have to come together in order for the city of God to thrive. And so what happens? Move through the, the, the minor prophets and you get, 
you get to a point where there's like 400 years of silence, nothing happens, God doesn't speak. No, there's even a, a group called the Maccabees that try and you know, politically revolt against the leaders. Now, as, the, as God brings the people back to Jerusalem and it doesn't, it doesn't happen, and then Jesus comes on the scene. Comes on the scene, Mark 1.15. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. That's huge. I mean, we just covered the whole Old Testament right there. And, and he says, the time is fulfilled. He says, all of these things that God has promised are going to come true now. Are going to come true now. I will inaugurate them. And he says, repent and believe in the gospel. And through his ministry, preaches about what it means to live in the kingdom of God, what that looks like when the kingdom of God comes into being, who he is as the suffering servant, uh, as God incarnate. And then he hangs on the cross and he says, it's finished. It's done. It, it's finished. What God has promised, all of those things that had to take place are fulfilled in me. Are fulfilled in me. What happened to, in, in, that was in Jerusalem, in the temple, the curtain was torn in two. The barrier is taken down, right? The barrier between man and God is now no longer. It's removed through the Son of God. The dam is removed and the stream of God's blessing flows. It flows. Remember Christ when he was resurrected? Paul says in Romans 1, he says that through the resurrection, Christ was declared the Son of God with power. And he comes to the apostles there. And he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Reminiscent of the prophecy in Ezekiel. And then later in Acts 2, uh, where you have Pentecost and the Holy Spirit is displayed in power amongst the people. And, P and Peter stands up and he says, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you now see and hear. So here's God bringing the new covenant to bear in and through Christ. You see that, that it took a Trinitarian God in order to remove the curse. Right? It took the sovereign power and wisdom of the Father, took the suffering servant, the Son, in order to take the penalty, take the punishment, and it took the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what happens in God's economy. Those things had to take place. Incidentally, Jesus is on the cross and he asks the question, my Lord, my Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I've, not, I've not studied into this, so take it what it's worth. But I think there's a, there's a, there's a, I think there's a note there what, of, of what it looks like for, 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 for that curse of God to rest upon himself. Remember from Genesis 15, I'll be torn in two if I don't uphold this, this covenant. The condition of the covenant is you, the people have to keep it, but they're not keeping it. And so that, that punishment had to take place, not because God fails in his promises, but because the people failed. And Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not that, not that something happened within, within God to make him un-God, but we get a glimpse of what does it look like for that punishment, for God to take that punishment, that the fellowship and the unity and the love within the Trinity between the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, would be torn into. 
I'm not going to press that too far. Maybe that's another sermon. But just to feel the weight of that. Just to feel the weight of that. So we come into the New Testament, and, and we, we don't see that new creation entirely right. There's, there's still a disconnect. We don't see the, all those promises fulfilled entirely now. We don't see the whole world return to, to man's authority, but we see the whole creation waiting, waiting eagerly for its redemption uh, for, or from uh, being set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And just as the labor process for a new baby can be lengthy and be painful, so the bringing about of the culmination of God's promises can be the same. And we do see Jesus who shared in our suffering and became for us our sacrifice, our great high priest, that he might render powerless death and release us from its slavery. And that he would, through the Spirit, grant us the first fruits of redemption. Those are taken from Hebrews 2 and Romans 8. And we receive what? We receive his Spirit. Not a spirit of slavery, but a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. These are the things which, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, that the generations of past centuries ago looked forward, they prophesied about. These are the things into which angels long to look, that God would bring about the fulfillment of his, his promises. And this is the pattern in the, in the New Testament. This is what happens in, in, like in, in Acts, because God places his spirit, his presence dwell, dwells with his people now. And, and what, do we, what do we see? We don't see a city, right? We don't see, we see a city with walls all around it and everything and them you know, hoarding this gift. We, we see Peter going to, uh, to, to, to the Gentile um, Cornelius and he preaches the gospel and this Gentile gets saved. The Cornelius looks nothing like, uh, like Peter and yet he gets saved and Peter's like, great, what do I do with this? He goes back to Jerusalem, this church who's predominantly Israelites, and goes, uh, the, this Gentile's saved. You know, now what do, we, what do we do? You know, what do we do? Okay, well, we, we welcome him in. Welcome him in. What about, what about Paul? Here's Paul who was a staunch uh, preserver of the, uh, uh, of, of, uh, um, uh, persecutor of the, of the church, uh, you know, and, and he wanted to preserve the, the heretical lineage, basically, um, you know, of, uh, of Judaism. And the Lord does a marvelous work and changes his life. And then he begins to preach to the Gentiles. Here's people who look nothing like him. He preaches to the Gentiles. They get saved. He goes back to the church and then says, well, what do we do about this? And the church says, teach him not to, teach him not to eat food that's sacrificed to idols. Teach him not to drink blood you know, from, from the animals. Now, what was that about? That was, that was don't, don't. Don't put obstacles, Gentiles, in the way of Jewish believers. Don't make your rituals a grounds of stumbling for the other believers. Unity in the faith through Christ. Unity in the faith through Christ. Philip goes to the eunuch, preaches the gospel. Paul at Acropolis. He says, he says here, you've got a statue in here to a God that doesn't exist. Let me tell you about him. I mean, here's, a, here's a city where people reveled in the idea of talking about new philosophical ideas. I says, let me tell you the one thing that makes sense. It gives them the gospel. People believe. God's presence moves through the gospel to people that look nothing like each other. This is the pattern in the New Testament. 
This is the pattern in the New Testament. So what is this what, is, what does this large view of what's going on tell us? That if you're a Christian, the presence of God is with you. The presence of God is with you. And that presence, the, that very stream that makes you glad, that gives you peace, that you see is there is a new creation in yourself, not perfect, but being redeemed and being sanctified, being brought into conformity to Christ, that makes you glad is meant to overflow to the very darkness that you're tempted to tremble against. And here's the point of application. Because the, temp- the temptation is to look at this Psalm 46 and, 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 and to run maybe in a p- political bent or in an ideological bent to wrap your, your hand around something that may be good and go, there, we're going to redeem the culture that way. Or to hold yourself up in, 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 in some little Christian bubble and just go, well, we're not going to interact out here. You know, we'll, we'll throw tracts. We'll throw gospel things out here. We're not going to interact with that. That's not what we're called to. That's not, what we're, that's not what we're called to. The presence of God that he gives us is to be shared throughout the nations. And God continues to redeem all things for himself. Should we advocate biblical truths and the roar of cultural noises? The good and right, yes, yes. But it's only under, because it's only under such truths that humanity will find true purpose and peace. We know that. We recognize that. But we don't ultimately put our hope in those things. Can intellectually make a new creation. Right? That's a divine work of God. God has to do that. And that is what we put our trust in. That's what we put our trust in. You, you realize as a Christian that ultimately your hope rests on God actually doing something. I mean, that, that's the whole purpose of doing that survey of, of what God has been doing is to point God's doing these things. That's the amazing thing about Scripture. It's not that, oh, here's a bunch of people that came together and figured out how to make stuff work. It's that God came to certain people and said, I'm going to do this. And they went, okay, you know, I'm going to follow you, and, and you did it, and now you're going to do something else. And that's, that's the amazing thing. That's, 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 the, that's the phenomenality of, of, of Scripture. But our hope rests on God doing something, of changing stone hearts to flesh, and that ultimately culminates in sending Jesus back. It's not a political solution. If, if, the, if a major news network came to you, and you're a Christian, and said, what's your, you know, what's your hope, what's your solution What's your solution for the culture? Jesus coming back. What else you got? I mean, if you, if you got a better solution, you know, what is it? I mean, that's the drumbeat of the Bible is we trust in God to, to do that. Now, we have a work to do now where we engage in what he's done. Because, right, what does Paul say? Beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. How will they hear if there's not a preacher? How will they... All that and Romans. I'm shooting from the hip there, so no. That's, that's the drumbeat, right? There's work to do. Paul says to the Ephesians, you know, God created you for good works, that you would walk in them. 
And those are fundamentally tied to engaging with people who don't look like yourself. That's what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Broken down the barrier of dividing wall, right? This law system that, that separates Jew from Gentile is now gone. You're one flesh, one flesh in the, in the spirit. God, God doesn't segregate socioeconomic, race. He doesn't segregate any of those things. Intellectual, dumb person, physical abnormality, any of those things. Cuts it down through, through the cross. Places his, his, his presence on us. Grants us grace. Grants us grace. So what is it a call to? What is it a call to? As the world shifts to look less and less like us. And I'll, I'll say that not, that, not that America ever was the the perfect definition of Christianity, but I think in times past there have been better drumbeats and patterns of, of true things in, in Scripture, but distinctively now the world is moving more and more away from it openly. Whereas previously it could be hidden, it could be cast, it could be shrouded, now it's more and more open. As the world shifts less and less to, to, to look like Christianity, it's necessary it necessarily causes us to look deeply at what we believe and why we believe it, but it also calls us to open our lives to the world, to, to engage in this. I mean, here, here's, here's, the, here's the essence of verses 4 and 5 here. Here's a city surrounded by its enemies. It's dangerous out there, darkness. Everything's crumbling. Everything's falling apart. But inside, there's joy. There's celebrations, plenty of water, life-giving water. Conventional wisdom would say, stay in the city, strengthen the walls, raise the walls, let's guard the water, let's only give it to people who look like us, right? It's a self-preservation. It's not what God has called us to. Right? What's the Great Commission? Go into all the world, make disciples out there. Take the life-giving water that I give you outside the walls. Lord, that's dangerous. Right? That, that's, that's, that's dangerous. It's risky. <laughs> what does God, Jesus say? I, Lo, I will be with you even until the end of the age. And that's, that's real. That's not like a out there somewhere. That's a, that's a real. And that's where we've got to trust the Lord. That in opening our lives to other people, other people who don't look like us, that's where the rubber really meets the road. It's a call for hospitality, in, inviting the very things we fear into the comfort of our lives, trusting God to do what he's promised. You know, the, the, the battles of God are not necessarily and primarily in political systems. They're in homes. They're in lives. They're entrusting God to do what he's promised as we engage with people. I think Matt Chandler defines hospitality well this way. He says, hospitality is to give loving welcome to those outside your normal circle of friends. Read that again. To give loving welcome to those outside your normal circle of friends. It's the call that you see in the, in the New Testament. right? Paul writing to the Ephesians, who's a Gentile church. He said, look, this barrier is broken down. Embrace those, regardless of what they look like. 
where you see the fruits of the Spirit and take the gospel to them. Paul writes the same thing to the Romans. Gentile Christians, don't hold your faith with favoritism. That's what happened to the Jews. Take the gospel to people. Take it to people who don't look like yourself. Does it take courage to do this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It takes courage. It's risky, right? It's, it's risky to bring in people who have a different view of, or, or different belief about family into your family, right? Risky to your kids. Well, my kids might hear words they, that we don't teach them. Well, my kids are going to see a different, different definition of mom and dad. It's risky. What if they get attracted to that? It's dangerous. We'll protect your kids, right? It's dangerous. Put your personal values at risk. No. The very things that crumble in society, the very things that we are challenged, the very people that we're challenged to take the gospel to. As Paul wrote in Romans 8, he says that we're being put to death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. That was, a, that was a real reality for the early church. Perhaps one day it would be for, for us. But there's a, there's a giving up of yourself that has to take place to take the gospel to people that don't look like you. It's easy to take the gospel to people that look like you. Whether that's, whether that's a race question, whether that's a socioeconomic question, you know, whether that's merely an interest, it's easy to you know, to do that to people who you share a whole lot in common with. It's harder with people that, you, that don't look like you. But in spite of these things, as Paul says, nothing can separate us from the, and I'll add, the, I'll put these in just for assistance, for the active, present, never failing love of God. That God is with us. God is with us. And that He will, as the psalmist write, give us help when the morning dawns. God is faithful to provide what you need when you engage in His work and to provide it at the right time. It's the pattern you see in Scripture. That we trust God to do what He's promised to turn stone hearts into, in, into live hearts. To, to do that. To do that. I'll close with this, this illustration. We watched the... Uh, we watched the Voyage of the Dawn Treader um, with our kids a Friday night, and um, it's a great, great movie, great movie. All those C.S. Lewis ones are great, but in in that in that movie, they're the they're they're in a they're in the Dawn Treader, which is the boat, and they're getting ready to go into the 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 dark lone island, and that's where the green mist is, and the green mist is taking people captive in there, and you know the the what's dangerous about the mist is that it puts temptations before you, and they're going to be faced with these. Temptations, temptations of, of, of unbelief and to conform to, you know, things like greed and all of, all of these other things that are going to tempt them. And Prince Caspian stands up before his crew and he gives this great speech. And one of the things he says is, remember the souls of those we've come to save. Remember the souls of those we've come to save because the green mist is holding captive the souls of people. That's the perspective we have this morning with the gospel. Remember the souls people you come in contact with. You may look at somebody and fear them or, or get a bad taste in your mouth because of something in particular. That person is, a, that person is created in the image of God. It's a soul. And the soul is eternal. And the Lord says, I have many people yet to save. 
go and engage in that work. Calvin says, if we desire to be protected by the hand of God, we must be concerned above all things that he may dwell amongst us. For all hope of safety depends on his presence alone. But that presence is, is one that goes with us in, in, in the midst of a darkened world. So where does your hope rest this morning? Does your hope rest in the comforts of, of, of the water of Christianity? Is that, is that hope being engaged with people who don't look like you? Are you actively trusting in God to do what He's been doing throughout history? Or is it, is it sitting on the sidelines and sipping the water of grace? Let's pray. Father God, I, th- I thank you, and I'm, I'm the first to admit, Lord, that I struggle with this. It's easy to get up here and talk about obedience and to trusting in you, but to to actually do it is 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 difficult. It's it's a fearful thing. My own flesh rises up and. And is afraid. Father, I pray that you would give us courage. That, that we would have the boldness of Paul, even as Paul asks for boldness. That he would speak as he ought to speak. May we speak as we ought to speak. May you give us in the moments of life that tempt us to treasure other things less than Jesus. To engage in people who don't look like ourselves. May we not as myself, be paralyzed by analysis, but that our feet would be eager to go. We would shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel, that we would look deeply into the things of Scripture. Father, we would love Jesus more than than the comforts that that our culture provides. You would keep us from temptation. Father, not the experience of it, but the giving in of it. Father, we would have an eternal perspective of people around us. We would see souls destined for eternity and that their only hope is the same hope that we trust in and that is Christ himself his saving work on the cross Father may you bring your new covenant into into truth and fruition in our lives Father may we be a humble church that loves outwardly seeing that Father I'm seeing your grace here and just pray that you would continue to pour your streams of water upon your church. And that, Father, we wouldn't hoard it, but that we would dole it out in huge buckets of of gospel-focused love for others. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.